Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast. I'm Mark Norman, folklore researcher and author. I hope everyone's been keeping safe and well. It's been a little longer than usual getting this latest episode of the podcast out, as I've had to deal with a lot of extra-life stuff, such as returning to the real world from the safety of lockdown, continued homeschooling, and all of those other extra pressures. However, I have been able to organise and build up a bank of forthcoming interviews and other projects, so moving forward there is some great stuff to come. We have recently organised the return of the Folklore Podcast newsletter. This was discontinued a while back when data protection regulations changed, but you now have the chance to resubscribe if you'd like to. You won't be bombarded with emails, just the occasional one to give advance notice of extra events, offers and similar things of interest. Just visit the Folklore Podcast website and hit the link on the homepage to go to the brief subscription form. Today on the Folklore Podcast, we're covering a theme which I've been wanting to do for some time, but which hasn't quite made it to the top of the list. Exorcism. Don't expect spinning heads, cursing and vomiting pea soup here, though. We're taking mostly a wide berth of the Hollywood image of possession and exorcism, and focusing more on the historical and ecclesiastical rituals trying to pin down exactly what was believed and what was undertaken, and for what purpose. Leading us through the topic is my expert guest, Dr Francis Young. Francis is a UK-based historian and folklorist specialising in the history of religion and supernatural belief. He's the author of 14 books. His research interests include monasticism, Saints, the history of magic and ritual, especially exorcism, early modern Catholicism, fairy belief and European paganism. He is especially interested in the history of England, Ireland and the Baltic states. He is also a professional indexer and a translator specialising in medieval and early modern Latin. Francis has twice been shortlisted for the Folklore Society's prestigious Catherine Briggs Award for new folklore books. I spoke to Francis recently via a Zoom call, appropriately during foul and thundery weather conditions. OK, so um, let's just kick off then, if we can, if you'd just like to say a little bit about uh, who you are and what research you do. So I'm Francis Young. I'm a historian and folklorist. I really specialise, I suppose, the way I'd put it, is the history of religion and belief, um, particularly focusing on supernatural belief. I've written a couple of books about the history of exorcism. Uh, my first book on exorcism was a history of exorcism in Catholic Christianity that came out in 2016 and has since been translated into Italian as Possessione, they gave it a completely different title. And um, uh, my second book on exorcism, uh, a, a History of Anglican Exorcism, uh, and that came out in 2018. Um, so those are my two books on that particular subject, but it's also something that is touched on quite extensively in my first book, which was English Catholics and the Supernatural, which came out in 2013. So it's been something I've been working on, really. My first article on exorcism came out in 2009. So, yeah, I've been working on it for over a decade now. 
Excellent. I suppose we, we should clarify that obviously, you know, exorcism differs very much in different cultures. And we are basically talking about the um, approach of the church to exorcism today, uh, rather than that that we might find in other cultures. But uh, you draw an interesting distinction there right at the very beginning, actually, by, by saying that, you, you know, you have your first two books being the the history of the Catholic approach to exorcism and, and the Anglican approach. Uh, can you say a little bit about how those two differ? Yeah, um, they very much differ in the sense that the the first book really is trying to understand, trying to explain how it is that the Catholic Church got to the point that it's in today, where there is a, a bit of a revival of of exorcism going on but exorcism has never really gone away in the roman catholic church whereas in the church of england exorcism did go away um it was effectively banned in all but name uh for 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 a couple of centuries uh and yet it had this revival in the 20th century so really the the anglican exorcism book although it does look at the earlier period it's primarily about the 20th century whereas yeah, the, the book about Catholic exorcism is much broader and goes over the whole, you know, chronological range going right back to St. Augustine. So, yeah, they, they are different in the sense that um, while you'll find very similar ideas in both traditions, there is a very different pattern to that history. So that removal of exorcism from the Anglican Church's um, toolkit, if you like, meant that the responsibility for looking at the problems for which exorcism was a perceived solution then moved across to other places. And that's where we see it moving across into the, the realm of, of the cunning woman or, or the cunning man or the wise woman, uh, those sorts of areas. Yes, that's right. And it's something which, you know, as early as uh, Keith Thomas in the 1970s, he noticed that you've got this clampdown on exorcism, which really, it comes to a head in 1604. Um, and that's the year that the Church of England brings out a new set of canons. And Canon 72 specifically requires that any exorcism has got to have the explicit license of the bishop. And in fact, that license was never given uh, throughout all the subsequent period. And that effectively bans exorcism. And yeah, what you see is that uh, cunning folk tend to take on that role, um, both men and women. Um, and they will deploy a range of, of, of strategies, some of it kind of cod liturgy derived from earlier sort of medieval Catholic practice, some of it more kind of folk remedies like you know, burning of herbs and things like that. Um, and yeah, the, the, where, where the clergy become extremely cautious and, and fear to tread, the, um, yeah, the sort of service magicians are very willing to step into that role. But you also have stepping into that role Catholic priests, missionary priests who are trying to convert the country back to Catholicism like Jesuits. They also step into that breach. And there are many parts of the country where people continue to believe well into the 19th century, the only priest who can lay a ghost is a Catholic priest. It's interesting, isn't it, as well? There's also this idea of um, the only people being able to lay ghosts, aside from the kind of Catholic approach, are, are Oxford and Cambridge-educated people. There's this kind of higher intelligence almost approach to it, do you say? Yes, and I mean, it, it's probably worth pointing out at this point that, that exorcism has two meanings, really, within English folklore. 
um, an English belief because you've got the, the sort of traditional form of exorcism that the church is primarily interested in. And that's the idea of dispossessing people who are you know, obsessed or possessed by the devil. But then you've also got this other kind of exorcism, which is very much a peculiar feature of English culture. And that's the exorcism of, of the haunting, the, specifically the exorcism of the haunted house. And it's something which is so rare on the continent that really there's no liturgy for it. There's no, um, there's not very much discussion of it in the demonological literature, although you come across it occasionally. But in England, it really is a, a big thing. And one of the peculiar things about that, that canon, canon 72 in 1604, although it bans exorcism in the first sense, exorcising someone who's possessed by the devil, it doesn't ban exorcising a ghost or a haunted house. And there are a few priests in that period, um, Anglican clergy, who do decide to take that on. Them. And um, often it's more than one. So, so you get these kind of sacred numbers. So sometimes it will be seven parsons. Sometimes it will be 12 parsons. Um, and you'll get the, um, the idea that the parsons will meet together and they will read the spirit down so they will fall until one of the parsons usually the you know the most powerful parson is able to put that spirit into a container so it might be a bottle it might be a shoe it might be some kind of you know a, a box and then it gets thrown into a body of water and this is a pretty stable folktale motif and then in from the mid 17th century onwards you get this rather strange deer that crops up again and again, that when the, uh, the, the parsons are doing the exorcism, they will tell the spirit to go to the Red Sea. And there's been quite a lot of research into this, but nobody has really uncovered exactly what this means. <laughs> why, why would you send spirits to the Red Sea? It's not in the Bible. You know? <laughs> this is not a, a, a scriptural reference. Um, it's, a bit, it's a bit peculiar, but it's, it's, yeah, nobody's quite got to the bottom of it. Then the spirit lies, pool, uh, or in the river, or in the well, or where, whatever body of water it's been thrown into. And woe betide anyone who then finds that bottle or that box and releases the spirit. And there's a, you know, going back to this idea of putting a, a, a spirit in a, in a shoe, there's a link there, of course, with a, with a very famous medieval folk saint, an English medieval folk saint, and that's Sir John Sean. Um, and this is a guy who was a parish priest uh, in Buckinghamshire, uh, it was a real person in the 13th century. Um, no, sorry, 14th century. And he, um, yeah, um, became very famous for his holiness. But the story that really caught the public imagination and that makes him this folk saint, he's never officially canonized, is that he captured the devil in a boot. And there are various places where you can see from the Middle Ages where Sir John Sean appears alongside the official saints and he's holding the devil in a boot. And there's a, there's a story, I don't know whether it's true, that the jack-in-the-box derives from this idea of Sir John Sean's devil in the boot uh, because, you know, it's the idea of the, the demon popping up. But that seems to be the root of that idea of the exorcist who puts the demon inside a, a, a bottle or a shoe or something like that. That's really interesting. I'd, I'd not heard I, John Sean. I, I I know all about, but I, I'd not heard that link with the Jack in the Box before. Actually, that's I'm intrigued by that now. That's something I'm going to have to look at and find out some more about that. Yes, I mean it, it's there in the early literature on John Sean in folklore. Um, 
I'm not 100% convinced by it personally. Uh, I think that it's, it sounds a little bit too speculative. I think we might be in the realm of Victorian folklorists getting carried away with themselves. Um, but I think that the idea that they were thinking of was that um, in drama, in medieval drama, where somebody might appear on stage as John Sean, they would have a prop that would be a, you know, a boot with a hole at the bottom and a, a puppet that they shove up on a stick and it pops out and yeah. the children laugh. And it, and it, you know, as, as the devil, you know, has, has been often pointed out by scholars of the devil, the devil is progressively more, more and more mocked in popular culture as time goes on. And it's that mockery of the devil uh, to the point where the devil just becomes a child's toy. Um, mm. It's a nice idea, but I, I'm not, yeah, I'm not a hundred percent convinced that that's really what happened. No, no, I, I, I think you're possibly right, but certainly there are some interesting parallels there, aren't there, as well? The, the, and the trapping of the spirit in the box, uh, the Theo Brown's book, The Fate of the Dead, discusses uh, this this whole kind of um, thing about laying ghosts in, in a lot of detail as well. So, that yeah, there are these tropes there, certainly. So so John Sean is, is the first of the exorcist parsons, if you, if you like, really. Um, in that respect or there are earlier ones who are notable yeah so john sean really is the earliest but one of the strange things about medieval england is that there isn't really any tradition of exorcists in medieval england there's a tradition of exorcism but the way that you get yourself exorcised before the reformation is you go to one of the incubation shrines and there are two main ones uh incubation being the practice of going to a shrine and sleeping there to receive a miraculous dream. Um, and so the, the, the belief was that if you're a demoniac, if you're somebody who believes yourself to be possessed by the devil or others think that you're possessed by the devil, you go to either um, St. Bartholomew's Hospital in London or you go to St. George's Chapel in Windsor. Um, and St. Bartholomew's Hospital the belief was that if you went there, you would receive a vision of St. Bartholomew. If you slept in, in uh, St. Bartholomew, the great church, which is still there, of course, gorgeous Romanesque church right in the middle of London. And um, yeah, the, the belief was that St. Bartholomew would come and heal you from your affliction in your dream. And a similar belief pertained in the late Middle Ages at St. George's Chapel in Windsor, which was, of course, the resting place of Henry VI, another unofficial saint, um, Henry VII, Henry Tudor, made strenuous efforts to try and get Henry VI canonised, but didn't quite manage it for various political reasons, but nevertheless sets up this elaborate shrine to his predecessor. And um, yeah, the people would go to Henry VI in the hope of um, deliverance from uh, demonic possession, really because Henry VI becomes associated with exorcism and that's because he himself suffered from some kind of mental illness. And no one's quite sure exactly what it was. Um, but yeah, in the, in the late medieval belief, he becomes associated with, with exorcism. And so after Sir John Sean, do we then have a run of kind of notable characters who, who are known for, for working as exorcists, amongst other things? Well, we don't have a great deal of really solid evidence of historically verifiable people. Um, most of these characters, they are, um, yeah, sort of popular heroes that we can't actually trace to being real people. There's a few exceptions. There's, there's a, 
a Dr. Rudd, who was um, a, a, a priest in Cornwall, who he um, exorcised the ghost of a lady called uh, Dorothy Dinglet. And this is near, near Launceston in Cornwall. And this is a, 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 an interesting example because we have his own account of what happened. And it's a fairly straightforward affair. He says that he went to a field where a local schoolboy had said that he kept meeting the ghost of Dorothy Dinglet. And he basically confronts the ghost in the field and tells her to go back to the place that she's come from. And it's, it's really very, very straightforward. That's all it is. But it becomes elaborated quite quickly into this story that he used, you know, pentacles and the, the key of Solomon and elaborate ritual apparatus and all of this, which is not actually there in his original account. So although he's a real person and it really did happen, according to his account anyway, um, it, it, it becomes hugely elaborated in the telling, in the, in the folklore. And yeah, another example, there's a, 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 an example of a, a parson who was renowned for reading down spirits and having these powers. And there doesn't seem to be any evidence for it other than after his death, a, this is in Devon, um, a, a book was found in which he was casting horoscopes for his parishioners. And so I suspect we might be in the realm there of somebody who had some kind of arcane knowledge, but because he's a priest, because he's regarded as learned within a very um, rustic community, you end up with these very inflated stories that then spread around this, this person. The others, though, I mean, I, I think that you're looking at more of a, a trope, really, that, that isn't linked to real people. I think it clearly did happen in some form, but I think the idea of multiple parsons meeting together and, and performing these um, excommunications and exorcisms, I, I, I'm very doubtful as to whether that ever happened uh, in reality. I think that's probably more in the imagination than it is in, in, in real events. But yeah, there are sporadic, historically attested examples of ghost layings where a parson was called out because somebody thought their house was haunted, for example. So, so where the clergy are working in the field of exorcism, both from, from medieval period um, through, um, what are they actually working with in terms of exorcism? Are they... Um, treating some conditions that we now know to be medical conditions that in medieval times were not understood and therefore were seen as demonic possession or are they treating something else or can we even know for certain well i think the answer has to be in the end that we don't truly know um there are various approaches that are adopted by historians to interpreting the, the demoniac phenomenon, if you like. Um, probably the one that's gained the most popularity in recent years, which, which is um, the approach adopted by Brian Levac, but also a number of other scholars, is a, a communicative performative model. Um, so it's the idea that possession, the, 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 the performance of possession, is a kind of pre-scripted social role for someone who feels marginalized, who wants attention in, in a way, um, who wants to be, to empower themselves, 
and therefore performs this role within society. Um, that's one approach. Uh, the, the idea of trying to identify demoniacs with people who are mentally ill or with epileptics, that's kind of gone out of fashion, really. Um, although I think it's hard to deny that there are cases where surely we must be dealing with somebody who is mentally ill. But yeah, it's kind of gone out of fashion because it doesn't fully explain the phenomenon of possession, which uh, when you look at the accounts of people who, who said they were possessed or believed they were possessed, um, they are normal a lot of the time, but they will go into these um, behaviours when they're confronted by the exorcist, when they're confronted by certain images or gestures or um, religious symbolism and things like that. Um, and yeah, I, I personally, I'm, I'm not into the idea of committing myself to any reductive explanation of what's going on here. And mm. I, I don't personally consider that to be important to my work as a historian. It may well be important to our understanding of humanity, but it's almost as though that's the work of the anthropologist rather than the historian. My job really is to look at what people believed, how they behaved and how they reacted to it. But I'm also not really interested in the phenomenon of possession. I'm interested in the phenomenon of exorcism. I'm interested in the words, the gestures, the ritual, the procedures, the legalities surrounding the process of trying to free somebody from demonic possession. There's a lot of historians who focus on demonic possession. Um, I, I am one of the few historians who actually focuses on the, the, the process of exorcism itself. So, yeah, I kind of take a step back from that question. Yeah. And that, that process is what I'd, I'd like to address, actually, anyway, because as, as far as the actual demonic possession itself goes, um, you know, that's that's a theological debate in some cases, or it's, as you say, a different historical debate as to what was happening. But from the, from the point of view of um, folklore and social history, then it's this ritualistic approach which is really important, isn't it? So can, can you say a little bit more about... Uh, we, we know about the, the reading down of, of um, spirits, but are there other rituals which are generally undertaken, um, both as kind of baptismal exorcism uh, and, and other forms? Yeah, well, the baptismal folklore is is really interesting because that's something which lingers over really from the pre-Reformation period into the into the post-Reformation period. Um, in the old Sarum rite, uh, the liturgy of the medieval English church, you have very elaborate liturgies of exorcism in which the devil is addressed and told to depart from the body of the the baby who is being baptized, um, and yeah, it's difficult to know to what extent that was taken literally uh, at the time. Um, some theologians didn't take it literally at all. Uh, they regarded it more as a kind of claiming the, the child for Christ rather than any kind of literal casting out of the devil. Did people really believe that an unbaptized child was possessed by Satan? And I, I'm, I'm not sure we really know, you know what the answer to that question is because people didn't, didn't really write that kind of thing down. There's one piece of folklore, though, that, that has survived that's associated with that period. And that's the idea that the, a, a font in a church is placed close to the north door so that the north door can be left open during the baptism service and the devil will fly out. Um, well, that's, 
yeah, that's actually a bit of a bit of a um, a, a misconceived uh, development because. Well, first of all, you don't leave the door open during a baptism. There's no grounds to believe that that was ever done. But actually, the reason why fonts are located close to the door of the church has nothing to do with the devil leaving. It's actually to do with the person being baptized, the catechumen coming in. Um, so it's because that person is entering the church and starting upon the mysteries of the Christian faith that therefore, symbolically, the font is placed close to the door. So I think that's a, that's a completely... Um, yeah, a, a, a sort of um, mistaken uh, etymology or etiology, if you like, of, of, that, uh, of that particular practice. But on the other hand, it might reflect the fact that there was a belief, and certainly by the 17th century, there seems to be a belief that an unbaptized child is possessed by Satan, which is one of the things that makes people very, very anxious to get their child baptized. Um, but having said that, in 1552, when the second prayer book of Edward VI is brought in, the baptismal exorcism is omitted. So there is a, a, a prayer in which the priest prays that the, the old Adam in this child will be destroyed and the new Adam will be reborn um, through the water of baptism. But it's only a prayer. It, it's just a, an expression of desire to God. It's not a, you know, you know depart Satan kind of proper exorcism whereas yeah in the in the 1549 prayer book and you know in the medieval church before then you have this very full-blooded um you know i exorcise you satan um you know liturgy and so it, it's strange that we get this persistence even after long after the exorcism is removed from the liturgy the idea that um there is an exorcism taking place seems to persist in popular belief uh, and in popular understanding of exorcism. And that's one reason why people were very anxious about exorcism, about baptism anywhere other than church. Um, in theory, it was possible for a midwife to baptize a baby if she believed that the baby was in danger of death. In Christian theology, anyone can baptize a, a baby or, a, or indeed an adult if it's absolutely necessary. It doesn't have to be a priest. But people really wanted it to be a priest and one of the reasons for that seems to be that they wanted an exorcism, even though there actually wasn't an exorcism. Um, but there is a signing with the cross on the child's forehead. And that is something which was taken from the old liturgy of exorcism in baptism. So, yes, it's a strange one, the relationship between exorcism and baptism. And, yeah, difficult to know how seriously it was taken at times. But it does seem to be something that lingered from the pre-Reformation era. And do these rituals change very much between the medieval period and, and moving through to the kind of uh, later 18th, 19th and through to the, to the modern centuries? Well, the big change happens at the Reformation um, in terms of the, the way in which exorcism of demoniacs, of people who believe themselves to be possessed by the devil happens. That was totally different, really. Uh, between before the Reformation and after, because before the Reformation, there was a, a, a liturgy of exorcism, although very seldom used in England. Um, but after the Reformation, you get this uh, idea of dispossession by Puritan ministers, the most famous of whom is a chap called John Darrell from Nottinghamshire. 
And Daryl goes around and effectively gives these lengthy sermon sessions interspersed by very loud praying and fasting. And yeah, no, no direct imperative exorcisms, no kind of talking to the devil and telling the devil to go away. But instead, he refers to them as dispossessions, not exorcisms. They are these set piece, theatrical, um, you know, almost like a, 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 a retreat, a service that involves the whole community and everybody comes together and prays and, and begs God to release this person from uh, demonic oppression. And yet, totally different, therefore, from anything that you saw before the Reformation. There are cases in some countries, and I don't want to dwell on these too much, but there are certainly some cases in some countries where exorcism is a very dangerous practice. And, and we do find some very sad reports of, of um, people's deaths during exorcism. Is it traditionally seen that way within the Christian churches? Uh, role for exorcism in Western cultures? This is a, a fairly recent development, the idea of exorcism as something which is a, a sort of theatrical set piece, very dramatic, um, very dangerous uh, form of um, ritual uh, in which there is a you know, dramatic confrontation between the exorcist and the, and the devil. The roots of it go back to the 17th century. You've got um, instances like the mass possessions at Loudun in France, um, which you know has been dwelt on by uh, novelists and filmmakers, and you know very influenced heavily also the the, the film The Exorcist and, and the book on which it's based. Um, but then you've got yeah the, the sort of the cinematic influence on it, I think has only intensified the expectations that exorcism is something really very serious and dangerous and, and confrontational. But actually, when you go back to the Middle Ages, and for, you know, for most, most of Catholic history, really, exorcism in the Middle Ages was totally mundane. I would describe it as a sort of spiritual pest control. It's, it's like getting in the rat catcher. Um, you have a problem that your your cattle uh, are sick, so you get the priest to sprinkle holy water while muttering some words. It's not, you know, a, a dramatic, you know, somebody levitating off the bed and their head spinning around. <laughs> yeah, in the Middle Ages, it is very mundane. It is a, a, a kind of, um, yeah, spiritual pest control. You, you might um, use exorcism as a remedy for toothache to exorcise the invisible worm that's decaying your teeth. And uh, you might use it when you're, you know, your cattle are, are sick and you bring in the priest to sprinkle holy water and say a few words or perform exorcisms over your field where you've got blight on the crops. Um, people are exorcised very easily when they touch the shrines of saints. And there's very much this tradition of, um, yeah, you just have to go on a pilgrimage really to the right place and then you'll be fine. Hmm. There's not this idea that exorcism is something to be feared. It's not regarded as something dangerous or dramatic or confrontational. That seems to be an early modern development that is kind of supercharged really by um, contemporary cinema. Um, and, and yeah, it, it, it's odd that we now tend to view exorcism in a very different way. 
from the way that they viewed it in the Middle Ages as a just a part of life, really. It, it happens, you deal with it, and you use the means at your disposal to do it. Um, but I suppose the big shift comes in the Reformation in England. Before the Reformation, as I say, there isn't really much exorcism. You tend to go on pilgrimages and go to shrines of saints if you've got a problem. But after the Reformation, all the pilgrimages and the shrines are gone. And so you've got instead this idea that it's about clerical power. It's about the power of the holy man who calls upon God to free you from the devil. And so it all becomes a lot more personal about the, the worthiness of the exorcist, but also about, you know, to what extent the demoniac is able to cooperate in this set piece drama of the exorcism. And that's certainly what you see with, with John Darrell, the, the Puritan exorcist. This role of uh, the modern media and the, the role of um, cinema and entertainment is, is probably um, one that we ought to explore, I think. Um, you, you were talking earlier about the, the very English tradition of, of exorcising haunted houses. Um, and I, I guess that's covered in, in some films as well as exorcising people within allegedly haunted houses. So are any of these cinematic portrayals of exorcism actually any use to us as, as far as a representation uh, of the ritual is concerned or, or are they just muddying the waters? I think the, the, the original film, the, the exorcist, uh, which is obviously closely based on the book and the book um, by William Peter Blatty itself is based on documentation to which he had access of a, an exorcism that really took place in the late 1940s in Washington, D.C., and um, yeah, we, we, we now have access to that original documentation. Um, and it, um, yeah, it, it, what I'd say, though, about The Exorcist is that whilst um, practicing exorcists, like, for example, Father Gabriele Am, uh, he said that it was a faithful portrayal of what happens in exorcism. It has to be taken with a pinch of salt as a, as a representation of exorcism as a, as a whole, um, I know a number of priests who uh, are involved in, in exorcism or, as they might prefer to refer to it, the Ministry of Deliverance. And very often it's, um, it's very mundane. It's really rather boring um, a lot of the time. And, yeah, it certainly doesn't involve people levitating off beds and heads spinning and things like that. So, yeah, I think that what our society has rather lost, perhaps because of the sensationalism, of cinema and the media is any sense that exorcism might be a fairly normal part of quite a few people's religious practice rather than something extraordinary, exceptional, sensational, and to be sort of, um, yeah, to be the object of, pur of prurient interest. So are, are there any cases where, where Hollywood actually does a good job with regards to exorcism, do you think? Um, well, another film that's based on, a, a book which is ostensibly um, factual is The, the Right. Um, and I would direct people, if they're interested in a more faithful portrayal of exorcism, to Phil Rickman's uh, series of detective novels, the Merrily Watkins novels, which um, he did actually work with a, a diocesan exorcist in the Diocese of Hereford to ensure that these were as accurate as possible. And I believe that ITV did a series, a, a, a TV series, 
um, of, of uh, dramatizations of the Merrily Watkins books. And those are, um, as I, I haven't actually seen them myself, but as I understand it, they are much more faithful portrayals of what exorcism is really like. Okay. Uh, one to check out for definite there then. Uh, and as far as the exorcism of haunted houses goes, we have some quite uh, famous cases, I suppose, um, not thinking about cinematic portrayals, but, but more generally um, cases like the Enfield poltergeist, for example, and these other kinds of fairly high profile hauntings. Do we find um, much of an exorcism role being spoken about within those? I, I think in the case of the Enfield Poltergeist, there, there wasn't really any overt religious involvement. You had mainly um, secular um, you know, uh, parapsychological investigators. Um, one example where you do have a bit of exorcism is Borley Rectory. Um, there you've got uh, Lionel Forster, the, one of the rectors who was very much involved in that story, uh, did uh, attempt to exorcise that house. But when you say exorcism, to most is a priest going into a haunted house. And I find that extraordinary because, of course, in Christian history, uh, for you know, two millennia, exorcism has meant casting the devil out of somebody's body. And yet it seems that in, in Britain, at, at any rate, and probably in America as well, uh, people's understanding of exorcism has shifted almost entirely over to the idea of exorcising a haunted house. So is there much of a role of exorcism within the church still, or are we now looking more at this kind of haunted house and, and less at this this kind of personal exorcism within the church. Uh, it's certainly a lot lower profile than it used to be, I think, but but is there still much of a role there? Uh, well, the Church of England still has a diocesan exorcist in, in every diocese, um, known as a, a deliverance advisor. Um, the, the bishop usually maintains pretty tight control over the the ministry, which means that it will only be that appointed priest who is the person who's allowed to perform exorcisms. But um, yeah, I mean, the Church of England, it gets requests for exorcisms all the time. Um, and it's a, you know, a, a, steady, a steady stream. Um, there's been lots of requests apparently coming in uh, under lockdown because people have been stuck in their houses and had a lot of time to, depending on what you think of it, um, had a lot of time to imagine funny goings on and bumps in the night or had a lot of time for, you know, spirits to show themselves and make themselves, you know, make their presence known. Um, a great deep demand. Um, the Roman Catholic Church does it rather less frequently, but it doesn't quite have as many exorcists in this country um, and slightly smaller, you know, in terms of demand for exorcism. Um, I, th I think we'll wrap it up at that point. Francis, thank you so much for your time. It's been, it's been a pleasure to talk about. Uh, it's a really fascinating subject and one that I've been wanting to cover for a while. So uh, thank you for taking the kind time to come on and talk about it. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure. I'm very grateful to Francis for taking the time to come onto the podcast and discuss this fascinating topic. During the course of the interview, one or two points were lost due to very sporadic Wi-Fi connection either a result of demonic possession or the bad weather. Now, I've edited down those sections of the interview to make it easier on the ear, but one section which was lost was my request to Francis to suggest some books which might be useful for further reading on the topic of exorcism, some of which he mentioned during the discussion. I've included the titles and author details, along with links to look at the books in more detail, 
in the episode description on the Folklore Podcast website and also in the show notes for this episode. So do check those out if you want to find out more. On the next episode of the podcast, I'll be talking to professional harpist and composer Elizabeth Jane Baldry about the appearances of the harp and its music in folklore. Elizabeth Jane is also the lady behind the fantastic Old Weird Britain Twitter account, so do look out for that. This interview was a treat to record as we elected to do so out in the open in Elizabeth Jane's private woodland, where we also had the chance to listen to and record some harp music. The filmed version of the interview will be made available very soon for our Patreon supporters at $5 and above. If you'd like to watch it and also help to support the podcast, keeping it free from adverts and regularly updated, please go to www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast. Don't forget that support tiers start from just $1 a month, which gets you discounts on the podcast lecture series, regular audiobook partwork recordings, and other snippets and ephemera of interest. The Patreon page is fast approaching its next target, which would see another increase in content output, so it would be great to see you there. Thanks for listening. See you next time.